Well, the only reason any of Shakespeare's plays have survived is because canny publishers saw a market for them amongst a populace hungry for material to read. In the 1600s, a novel as a genre didn't really exist in England, so it was poetry and plays that people were reading for pleasure, and sometimes titillation. Dr Hannah August is the Senior Lecturer in English at Massey University. She's researched the habits of and surviving publications owned by 16th and 17th century readers for her book, Playbooks and Their Readers in Early Modern England. She's about to give a lecture about her findings at the University of Otago Centre for the Book. One of the interesting things is that there are a vast number of early modern plays that are now referred to by scholars as lost plays. We know their titles, we know vaguely their synopses for for some of them, not for all of them. Um, And so there were a much larger number of early modern plays that were performed in the 16th and 17th centuries than have come down to us in print because only a, a proportion of them were picked up by enterprising publishers at the time uh, who thought, oh, maybe I can make a quick buck off these. And um, uh, so they there weren't royalties for the for the playwright. Play scripts were the property of the of the theatre company normally, and they were assets that were sold on to publishers. And then the publishers made any profit that was to be made off the um, off the playbook. And ideally, you wanted to to be able to reprint it. You wanted to sell out your first print run and then go into a second or a third print run. And so someone like Shakespeare, who did that repeatedly, was a great great buy for a publisher. But um, uh, there are all sorts of, I suppose, one-hit wonder early modern plays as well where it's the only title that survives by this one playwright who you know may have written other things but they haven't the rest of them haven't come down to us in print. So what would be some of the earliest ones? So some of the earliest ones um, so I'm interested in particular in the printed versions of plays that were performed initially on the public stages of London so were performed professionally. Um, The earliest examples of those date from the early 1580s and that's around when Shakespeare is getting going his um, first plays aren't printed until the 1590s, if I remember rightly, um, and they're printed in this um, format called the quarto format. Some of us are familiar with the first folio of Shakespeare, um, this sort of great collected works, this big fat tome, and we're going to celebrate the 400th anniversary of uh, Shakespeare's first folio next year. It was printed in 1623, but for several decades before that, uh, at least half of the plays that are collected in that folio had had lives of their own in print in this quarto format, which is um, a smaller kind of pamphlet-style play, one play only about the size of, they're about A5 size, um, a a bunch of pages um, folded in four, actually, that's that's where the name quarto comes from, roughly stab-stitched, it's called, down the the spine, so just sewn together, they don't have bindings. Um, If you were rich enough, you might buy a few of them, normally at least 10 of them, and then get them bound into a into a sort of personalised collection called a Samuel band. Um, but generally they were single objects that you could buy for a few pence. Sixpence is, is the um, uh, standard price that gets bandied around for quarto plays in the period, although we think that they may sometimes have been sold for less than that, which would have made them even more affordable for um, for members of the populace who were who were buying kind of cheap print in the period, so it was, it was quite a popular genre um, drama, and uh, and that makes sense because we know that there were people from all sorts of different backgrounds going to plays in in that period, and so and literacy levels were increasing over the course of the period, particularly over the course of the um, first part of the seventeenth century. And was this pre-novel? 
Yeah, this was pre-novel. So this is this is the other interesting thing is that the novel as a genre doesn't really get going in England until the end of the 17th century. So if you want to be reading something for your leisure reading, uh, you're reading really plays or, or poetry. And plays, the interesting thing is that people weren't I mean, some people seem to have been reading plays as though they were novels, so immersing themselves kind of in the in the dramatic action, in the fictive world, not necessarily thinking of them as something that had had a life on the stage, um, really letting themselves just get immersed in the story rather than thinking, oh, this this is where this character would enter and this is what the entrance would look like, you know, not not in terms of the the traces of, of readily intervention and people writing things in the margins. There's not all that much that I found during my research research that shows that people are, are visualising plays on stage. But so sometimes they're engaging with them sort of novelistically, but they're also just using them as these sources of readily available witty language often that they are then going to cull for their own purposes and pass off as their own. This is a period when plagiarism is not nearly the sin that it is today. I, I saw your line there, to mine reusable phrases intertwining the pursuit of pleasure with that of profit. That's right, that's right. This is pre-copyright too, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so um, an imitation was really highly thought of as, as a way to um, begin your compositions in the period. This is what boys in grammar schools were taught to do. Um, you have to imitate, 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 and then you might make something of your own finally when you're sufficiently um, skilled to be able to do that because you've read and absorbed the words of all these other great writers who've, who've come before you. And obviously, given how derivative some of the writing that comes out of that period is, there were plenty of people who didn't really move past that imitation stage of, of their writing apprenticeship. So, but interestingly, it's, it, the types of things that you see underlined or picked out with little crosses in the margin, or sometimes these little pointing hands, which were known as manicules, and you see sort of a pointing finger, um, and they were printed in books um, at the time as well. You had printed manicules pointing to passages that you were supposed to pay particular attention to as a, as a reader, but then you see readers with their own pen drawing these little hands sometimes to pick out particular lines. Like a highlighter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, often, you know, when I was (laughs) researching this topic, I would catch myself reading a, obviously not a 400-year-old playbook with my highlighter in hand, but reading something about people reading 400-year-old playbooks with my highlighter in hand, um, doing exactly the same thing. So there's a continuity of of reading style. But the types of things that get picked out aren't necessarily always the the types of um, kind of sententious aphorisms or things that are supposed to be the type of the type of material that gets copied into your commonplace book and so you, you think oh I need something that is uh, that is to do with death or love or um, uh, I don't know some kind of great topic these were the types of things the sort of abstract headings that you were supposed to organize your material in your in your commonplace book your, your sort of manuscript notebook under often what you find in plays is people underlining the bawdy bits, the sexy bits. Oh, it's just like kids in dictionaries <laughs> back yeah, in the day, right? totally. And so that's one of the really interesting things that, that came out of my research was... Um, or rewinding videos. Sorry, I just, I yeah, just had a vision of Yeah, yeah, of yeah. It. No, yeah. and so, I mean, because we're, often we're so used to, um, to Shakespeare as an example of writing from this period, and Shakespeare's actually pretty tame compared to some of the other playwrights from the period, someone like Thomas Middleton or John Webster. There's some terribly bawdy stuff particularly in their in their comedies and some quite kind of viciously misogynistic stuff as well and um, and so you do see that plays become the site for readers with their pen in hand to kind of affirm their stance on <laughs> 
<laughs> on the place of women in the 17th century. You know, either either they're for the oppression of women, or very occasionally they think that it's um it's not okay to um, be be saying these sorts of things. But often the um the sort of love love exchanges between characters are the ones that have been highlighted or even com- uh, copied into into a commonplace book. There's one. One commonplace book belonging to a, a Scottish reader, a Scottish play reader that's housed in the National Library of Scotland, and uh, you can tell what he has been most interested in in terms of the plays that he has, the play extracts that he's been copying into his commonplace book because he writes marginal keywords in the margin, and um, they are routinely woman, 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 maidenhead, um, <laughs> you know, marriage, anything to do with kind of women and and love and courtship and sex, um, so. So it's really fascinating because it's not necessarily what we would think of about um, this this literary genre that has become quite, um, I suppose, associated with with high culture for us. Is that actually it seems to have, and certainly within this this kind of genre of the quarto, this material genre of the quarto, actually been for some readers a bit like soft porn. I know you're not particularly interested in the in the publishing perspective, which has been looked at, but what about the accuracy? I mean, as you've been looking through these quartos and reading them, we know that there have been variations, for example, on Shakespeare's yep. play, some subtle, some not so subtle. What have you found? I mean, were they, were they sold as a true record of this play? So there's kind of two answers to that question. One is that they regularly have this kind of announcement on the title page uh, where they say, as it was performed in the Globe Theatre on the Bankside um, by the King's Men or something like that. And so that phrase, as it was played or as it was performed, sort of holds up the, the printed play as a faithful reproduction of what someone might have seen um, in the theatre. And we know that in many instances, it wasn't a faithful reproduction that the um, that the text of the play was often longer than what had been performed. Um, we are pretty certain that the that reference in the prologue to Romeo and Juliet, the two hours traffic of our stage, is, is pretty accurate in terms of the um, length of public performance time for um, for plays in Shakespeare's time. So, um, I mean, something like Hamlet, uh, you may recall that four-hour Hamlet that Kenneth Branagh made, uh, was that the 90s now, maybe the early 2000s? Anyway, that, that represents a longer text of Hamlet than would probably originally have been performed in the, um, in the public playhouses. And so, but you could buy that longer text and read it as a play. Um, so you you sometimes get, did get more something different than what had been played as it had been played on the stages of early modern London. So that's one thing. But then in terms of accuracy, one of the most common types of annotations that you see from early readers in these books um, in the surviving 400-year-old copies of them is corrections of typos. And, uh, you know, there was many a slip twixt the cup and the lip in the early modern printing house, and you can see sort of conscientious readers correcting spelling mistakes. Oh, or some things never cor- change, No, no, right? that's right. Um, <laughs> sometimes the uh, the speech prefix has been given to the wrong character, and so they've picked up on that and, and corrected it. Or they've objected to some of the language that has been used. So often, you know, the 
those phrases like zoons and um, blood, all these things that are abbreviations of God's wounds, God's, God's blood, which were, um, oh, you know, religious oaths in the day. Some some readers say, no, definitely not. We can't be having this. And, and they cross hilarious. it out. There's one instance where um, a reader has, is the word Jehovah is, is uttered by a character and the reader has carefully burnt out the entire word from the page and there's, there's nothing nothing else damaged on the page around it. It's just clear that this particular word was um, was objectionable to that reader. Such a detective. And detective work is what you're doing, of course. I mean, in this period of uh, with literacy, I guess there was a, a real hunger to read. So pre-novel, as we were saying, the alternative what? The Bible, of course, and pamphlets and poetry. So where did these plays fit in? Were they a minority uh, or did they become something quite substantial until overtaken by the novel? Yeah, so they... Um they made up about 10% of the what scholars refer to as sort of the speculative literature that was um, published at the time. It was not the kind of um, speculative literature that we talk about now in terms of dystopian literature. It's more just things that publishers were publishing because they thought they might make a quick buck off it rather than something that they were mandated to publish by the state or something like that because they had there were all sorts of things that they also had kind of state commissions to, to, to publish. Like um, Penny Dreadfuls later on. Yeah, know. and um, uh, so alongside playbooks you've got both shorter and, and longer poems, so sonnets for instance very popular in the 1590s but then longer verse narratives, something like um, Spencer's The Fairy Queen. You've also got, I mean, what fascinates me are these genres that definitely are targeted at kind of the less affluent, um, perhaps less literate uh, sectors of of the population. Um, things like jest books, collections of jokes um, uh, to, to recount and tell to your friends, and um, printed ballads, which were printed on kind of one sheet. And, um, and often we think people might have somebody might have bought these not necessarily being able to read them themselves but then they would take them to a friend who could read it and, and you know and read it uh, have it read out loud to them and particularly um, for women to be read to they were generally less less literate um, and it makes sense for plays to be a genre that were being read aloud because obviously they come from this performative origin um, where those lines are are to be uttered verbally so were more people reading poetry than were reading the plays, would you say? I think poetry, it's fair to say that poetry was a slightly more elite genre at the time, so plays seem to straddle this um, uh, straddle this line between kind of appealing to the more educated and the more elite, but also having this appeal to um, people at, at the other end of the social spectrum. And that so, big rip-roaring story eh, that they could relate to. So, that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. and that, um, uh, that reflects the fact that there were different types of playhouses in London at the time, public playhouses those amphitheatre playhouses we think of, like the Globe, that are open air, um, that would have attracted, a, as I said earlier, a, a large um, swathe of society. And then there were what they called hall playhouses, which were enclosed indoor, more expensive to um, buy a ticket to see a play there. So Shakespeare's company from 1608 onwards has access to 
both the Globe and a playhouse called the Blackfriars. They've got an amphitheatre playhouse and an indoor playhouse, and they're alternating between the two of them so they can capture the, the widest kind of um, swathe of audience possible. Yeah, so some people argue that those plays that were performed in the hall playhouses and the more elite private playhouses are then the ones that, when they get printed, get targeted towards, um, towards more elite readers as well. But it's clear that plays that were performed in the in the amphitheatre playhouses uh, did did have a readership amongst kind of that slightly lower lower level of um, of literate society uh, in in London and and elsewhere as well because we have records of um, people in the regions who wouldn't ever necessarily have been able to see a play performed on a London stage nevertheless own buying and, and owning these kind of records of performances in London. Do we get any sense that the playwrights were keen? You mentioned before they're not going to get any money for it, you know, um, and copyright isn't in place. But would the playwrights, do you think, have seen it as an advantage to have their scripts in circulation? Um, so one of the arguments that gets made about Shakespeare and those longer versions of um, Shakespeare's plays is that he was writing uh, with publication in mind and um, was writing those kind of longer, more poetic versions of um, of uh, more kind of lyrical versions of plays like Hamlet and, and Romeo and Juliet. There are a couple of other plays that exist in sort of a longer version and a shorter version. Um, and so... Yeah, so it's, it's still a contentious idea, but um, uh, but some scholars say, well, yes, playwrights knew that um, they their only chance at a kind of at posterity, at, at a kind of literary longevity, was to be published, and therefore were writing kind of with with an eye to that. And it's, marketing too, isn't it? Getting their name out, getting their brand out there. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and that's another interesting thing to think about: is um, to what extent is there a crossover in terms of the way that people understood that that brand that might be associated with the name William Shakespeare, for instance, um, as being something that is constructed on the page, where he's also obviously, for instance, the the author of all of these sonnets and a couple of very successful successful um, uh, longer longer verse poems, Venus and Adonis, um, being one of them, um, and so. It, that point he's he's very much associated on on the page with ideas of um uh, of love and and uh in comedy almost he's, he's he seems to be quite um associated with ideas of comedy in the period um in a way that we don't tend to, we think of him as this kind of great, great tragedian, Hamlet, the best play ever written, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, or we think, oh, he wrote all those history cycles, and um, but he's just writing across so many genres in, in the period that that brand is a little bit hard to pin down, almost. I can see why you just love this. I guess it is those annotations, perhaps more than anything else. You know, those those human marks, those human responses to the plays that have been really thrilling. Do you have a, a particular favourite? You know, a discovery that you've made. There's uh, one recently that I, I've actually I talk about it in my book and I've had to um, revise what I think about it very recently because um, uh, I'm writing a new introduction for uh, Romeo and Juliet at the moment and so I'm thinking thinking quite hard about Romeo and Juliet and um, one uh, one annotation that I talk about in my book is in a copy of a, a famous tragedy by Thomas Kidd um, called The Spanish Tragedy and um, uh, it's simply this reader recording in the margin and it doesn't really seem to have all that much to do with the playtext but saying on this date and 
1638, my cousin Betty Rotten died. And he's, he's obviously, you know, remembering his cousin Betty Rotten. Um, and, uh, and, and it is next to a passage about kind of death and grief. And so maybe something in the play is making him recall his grief at his cousin's death. Anyway, in a copy of Romeo and Juliet and another quarto that survives from the period, um, there is... Uh, an, an annotation in the margin Elizabeth Rotten her lot is to be neat which is a lovely anagram of the name Elizabeth Rotten um, but um, it's clear that this Elizabeth Rotten and the Betty Rotten who was the cousin that died are the same same person and um, and previously scholars have thought that Elizabeth Rotten is sort of snarkily writing her own name and her disappointment at the fact that her lot is to be neat in the margin of the playbook and it doesn't seem to have all that much to do with um uh, with the adjacent playtext, but actually, what is on the page is um, uh, Lady Capulet saying to Juliet, "Are you still weeping for the death of your cousin Tybalt? Her cousin has just been killed." And so, it's this passage of text that describes the death of a cousin, and it's juxtaposed with this reader's um, annotation in the margin, uh, the name of this cousin who is then um, name-checked in this other annotation in this other playbook, um, and it's just this wonderful kind of connection of play world and real world via the, the printed text on the page of the play and, and the reader's annotations. And so it's, it's clear, I think, that the, um, the annotation isn't Elizabeth Rotten writing her name. It's the cousin who remembered her and inscribed her death in the, um, uh, in the other playbook who is, who is remembering her and anagrammatizing her name.